Revelation chapter 7. Let's stand if you can. We'll begin reading in verse 1. And after these things I saw four angels standing at four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. This is the word of the Lord. Preacher Larry, would you open us up in prayer? All right, let's review a little bit from the last time we were in Revelation. We talked about the opening of the six seals. The white horse, the first seal brought forth the rider. He brought forth a, a pseudo-peace, if you will. Then there was a red horse rider. And he came and when he brought, he took peace from the earth, he's a symbol of war. The third seal was the black horse that brought uh, famine and hyperinflation. The fourth seal brought the pale horse or the sickly horse. And with him came pestilence and a quarter of the earth uh, dies. Think about that. There's 8 billion people on the planet right now. And by the time you get to the fourth seal, if the rapture happened today, I don't know how many would go in the rapture, but... Um, you're looking at 2 billion people that would be wiped out by this time period. Then the fifth seal brings the cry of the martyrs, and they've been killed for the witness of Jesus Christ. Then we get to the sixth seal, and when you get to the sixth seal, you have a meteor shower or cosmic disturbances. Have we lost power on the microphone? We have lost power on the microphone. That's all right. I'll grab one of these All right, there we go. I feel more like a TV preacher with these handheld mics anyway. I like it better. <laughs> All right, what seal were we on? We're on the sixth seal. You got cosmic disturbances. Give me just a little bit more. Not a whole lot. I promise I won't scream. The sixth seal, you got cosmic disturbances. Earthquake. There's a blackout. Um, the moon is darkened. The uh, asteroid or meteor shower. Um, and chapter 6 ends with a question, doesn't it? The, uh, the people on the earth, the earth dwellers, they say God's wrath has come and who shall be able to stand? Well, today, chapter 7 is going to show us who, who's going to be able to stand. And I love this chapter. And as I've studied more and more this week, it has just brought me great, uh, a great sense of comfort and joy. Um, this is an interlude. This is one of several. Uh, Andy Woods, a great preacher, calls them um, 
non-chronological parenthetical insertions, NCPIs for short, uh, where you, you get, be, be aware of the heptatic structure of the book of Revelation. You got seven seals, seven trumpets, and then seven bowls. And when you get to a six, there's a break in the action. So we've come to the sixth seal, and now there's a break in the action. There's an interlude, if you will, or a, a non-chronological parenthetical insertion, if you prefer, NCPI. But, um, or in, was that, yeah, the NCPI. <laughs> How many of y'all remember the little Ten Commandments illustration that I showed you last week? That's a cool little thing. We'll, we'll do it again sometime. Okay. So, uh, all of this is transpiring. Uh, now, and it says in verse 1, After these things, John says in, in Revelation 7, 1, After these things I saw four angels. And so, uh, we're not sure who these four are. If they may be the same as the four living creatures in, uh, you know, in the previous chapters. I don't know, and I couldn't say for sure. It wouldn't be dogmatic. But they're standing, uh, the scripture says, at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, and that the wind should not blow. All right, so immediately we've got something I want to address because you see this phrase, four corners of the earth here. And there's a lot of people that believe the earth is flat. And they keep, the, this is growing momentum. People on the internet and Christians are doing this. And I want to beg you, please stop doing this. Uh, the earth is not flat. The moon's not flat either. Uh, if it was, I'd start a flat moon society. We call ourselves the lunar ticks. <laughs> but, but there is no flat moon. It's not a flat earth, okay? Um, I got a little point up here, flat earth society. I, I'm telling you, there's a lot of Christians who believe this stuff. And it's hurting your witness to the unbeliever when you, when you embrace this kind of stuff, okay? Uh, let me tell you, this is figurative language. The four corners of the earth is an idiom of speech. Uh, Isaiah 11, verse 12, talks about the, uh, the same thing. Just like the points of a compass. You know, you got the north, the south, and the east, and the west. Four in the Bible is often a symbol of the world. And you'll see, you know, you'll see that time and again. Um, look, in Revelation 7, look at verse 9. You'll see another four. It talks about... Nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, right? And that's meant to represent the whole world. That's, that's, that's what's indicated there by the four winds. Now, the earth, doesn't, uh, it's, it's not flat. Isaiah 40, verse 22, refers to the circle of the earth. Now, Job's the oldest book in the Bible. Look at Job 26. Job has a profound understanding of the universe. He says he stretched forth... Job 26, 7. He stretches out the north over the empty space and hangs the earth upon nothing. That's amazing. Did you know the ancient people believed the earth was on an elephant? Did you know that? Yeah. That's actually the, 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 the Hindu. That, that's what they believe. The earth is, uh, is on an elephant. And I think the elephants are on top. It's four elephants, I think. And they're on top of a turtle. <laughs> so Job was way ahead of them, wasn't he? Now in Luke 17... Verses 34 through 36. I'll tell you what, James, why don't you read that for us? I know most of y'all have that memorized, but I'll get James to read it anyway. Luke 17, 34, 36. Yes, sir. Jesus predicted his return would occur while people would be living in different distances from his home. 
I'm sorry. Would you read out of the scripture? I'm sorry, I didn't clarify. It looked like a scripture up there, didn't it? Sure did. Y'all don't laugh at him. I'll give you the microphone next time. tell you in that night there shall be two men in one bed the one shall be taken and the other shall be left. Two women shall be grinding together the one shall be taken and the other left. Two men shall be in the field the one shall be taken and the other left. And they answered and said unto him where Lord? And he said unto them wheresoever the body is there will there will the eagles be gathered all right, thank you. So Jesus said when he comes back, there's going to be some folks that are in bed and some folks that are grinding at the mill. You say, well, preacher, I didn't know they worked third shift back then. They didn't. <laughs> Jesus predicted that it would be dark when he came for some people. They'd be in the bed sleeping. And on the other side of the world, people would be up doing stuff. Okay. Now, I wonder how Jesus knew that. Could it be because he created the earth? Amen. And Jesus didn't think the earth was flat. So you shouldn't be thinking that either. Okay. Uh, furthermore, everybody probably in this church carries a camera with them at all times. Right? You wish you didn't, but most of us do. That's just out of necessity. Okay. It's funny. There's all kinds of pictures of the earth from space. But there's not one picture of the edge of the earth for you flat, flat earth folks. So I've got a challenge for you. If you want me to convert to the flat earth society, show me one picture from the edge. Because okay? surely somebody on a plane. Anybody ever flown on a plane? Going around the world? <laughs> Ask any pilot if the earth is flat and they will die. <laughs> you can go to some of the world's tallest buildings. Where is it? It's in Dubai or somewhere over there. And you can see the curvature of the earth from the tallest buildings. Now, if you don't believe it, you say, well, Henry, you're not a scientist. Well, you're not either. <laughs> Go to Answers in Genesis. I will defer to the experts. These are Christian people that are a lot more educated than I am. Go to Answers in Genesis. Type in, is the earth flat? And just enjoy yourself. Spend the whole day. All right? I've been waiting on a chance to talk about the flat earth, and God gave me an opportunity here. He said, What did we learn in church today? <laughs> we learned that the earth is a sphere, it's not, a, it's not flat. Okay. Now, it says that the, uh, the, the command was given that the wind would not blow. Now, the four winds. Daniel talks about those too. And they're, they're synonymous with judgment. But imagine what an eerie feeling for the wind not to blow at all. That's responsible for all of our weather patterns. Verse 2, he says, I saw another angel ascending from the east. Now the Greek is actually uh, Anatole Helios, which means from the rising of the sun. Which is another way of saying the east. By the way, we know the earth doesn't rise up and down. Our perception of it is why? Because the earth is a sphere, and we're going around and around, and, and so on and so forth, every day. Okay. 
No more flat earth jokes, I promise. <clears throat> but this is this gaining traction, so I thought, well, we'll go ahead and deal with it. Um, now, since he's got the seal of the living God, we'll talk more about the seal in just a moment. But aren't you glad you serve a living God? Amen. He's not dead. He's alive. I serve a God that can talk to me, that can heal me, that can deliver me, that can save my soul. That can comfort me when I'm feeling low. That can give me peace deep within. That can comfort me. Can take away all my fears. <clears throat> yes. Hallelujah. I serve a living God. Yes. My God's alive. My Jesus is alive. He's alive forevermore. With the keys of hell and death. You know, Israel was always going into idolatry. Always. And... And I know we look, back, we look down on them. But you know, we've got our idols too. We've got our idols too. Uh, money, pleasure, sex, drugs, alcohol, phones, televisions, video games. There's all kinds of things. Anything that we put before God is an idol. And the New Testament is full of warnings against idolatry. But idols are dead. Idols can't do anything for you. They're empty. But our God can satisfy. He can satisfy, um, ultimately, the soul. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the sea, saying, Do not harm the sea, or the sea, or the trees, the earth, or the sea, or the trees, until we have sealed the service of our God in their foreheads. Now, this is interesting here. Now, uh, let's talk a little bit about the, the, uh, the backdrop to this. There's a lot of Old Testament... Uh, Quotations. Excuse me. There are no quotations from the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. But there's over 200 allusions to the Old Testament. Go with me to Ezekiel chapter 9. Ezekiel chapter 9. Now God has a precedent for sealing his people. You know that? In Noah's day, Noah was put in the ark. The ark was sealed with pitch. And God shut the door in on Noah. We read about the children of Israel when they left Egypt. What happened? God told them to put blood on the door. That was a, a seal. Uh, and God would pass over them. What about Jericho? When Joshua came into Jericho, there was the scarlet cord, remember, that Rahab had. And she hung it in the window and she was spared. God has a history of sealing his people. But the reference, I believe, comes from Ezekiel 9. And James, I'm going to get you to read here in just a minute. As soon as I get to Ezekiel, I've been running my mouth. Let's see how much I want you to read. All right, read verses 1 through 11. Well, I guess read the chapter. I'm sorry. All right. Ezekiel 9. <clears throat> Ezekiel 9. He cried also in mine ears with a loud voice, saying, Cause them that have charge over the city to draw near, even every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the way of the higher gate, which lieth toward the north, and every man a slaughter weapon in his hand. And one man among them was clothed with linen, with a written inkhorn, by his side, and they went in and stood beside the brazen altar, and the glory of God of Israel was gone up from the cherub 
whereupon he was to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed with linen, which had the rider's inkhorn in his side. And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. And to the others he said, In my hearing, Go ye after him through the city, and smite. Let not your eyes spare, neither have ye pity. Slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children and women, and come not near any man upon who is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. Then they that began at the ancient men which were before the house. And he said unto them, Defile the house and fill the courts with the slain. Go ye forth. And they went forth and slew in the city. And it came to pass while they were slaying them, and I was left, that I fell upon my face and cried and said, Ah, Lord God, will thou destroy all the residue of Israel in thy pouring out of thy fury upon Israel? Then said he unto me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great, and the land is full of blood, and the city full of perverseness. For they say, The Lord hath forsaken the earth, and the Lord seeth not. And as for me also, mine eye shall not spare, neither will I have pity, but I will re recompense their way upon their head. And behold, the man clothed with the wind, which had the inkhorn by his side, reported the matter, saying, I have done as thou hast commanded me. Okay, thank you. Did anybody get any volume on this microphone? <laughs> I'm sorry, man, this is a dirty trick. Check one, two, this one's dying out. Okay, I've got power again. Praise God, that's even better than before. Well, yeah, we'll have a spare. Thank you, Brother Hope. Appreciate it. So, in Ezekiel's day, the people in Israel were committing idolatry. Let's put this down. It's bad enough I'm holding one, right? One, two. Um, so in Ezekiel's day, there was idolatry going on. And God says, I'm going to judge the people. But before I do, he tells the angel, he said, I want you to mark the people who are not on board with all this wickedness. And I, as you look around, don't you feel the same frustration that these people felt? When you see the wickedness in our day. You know, and God knows the ones who, who belong to him. We're sealed too, the Bible says. And I've got some, uh, some, some scriptures up here. A seal speaks of ownership. 2 Timothy 2.19 says that the Lord knoweth them that are his. And he has a seal. 2 Corinthians 1.22 says that Christ, God, has sealed us and given us the earnest of the spirit in our hearts. How many of you remember what earnest money is? Earnest money. They don't use that term a whole lot anymore. Except in legal, legalese. But it's a pledge, right? It's a pledge of a future um, redemption. Ephesians 1.13 says, After we believed in Christ, we were, what, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, Ephesians 4.30 is a command to us 
it's not a it's not a suggestion, it's a command, but it also contains a wonderful promise. The negative side of it is we're not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Did you know that you could upset the Holy Spirit? That you can grieve him? That he is a personal entity, he's not just a force. We can grieve him, but the reason we don't need to grieve him is because we're sealed until the next time we sin. Is that what it says? No. Since we're sealed until the day of what? Redemption. That's eternal security, folks. I want you to think about this. Whatever you do, if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit is with you. Hallelujah. He's with you. And that, that has a negative aspect of it too, right? If whatever we participate in, you're involving God in that. That's why Paul wrote to the Corinthians. And he says, look, we're not going to take the, the temple of God and make it the members of a harlot, you know. Because you take Christ with you wherever you go. Where two or three are gathered in his name. But thank God we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. We have, Jesus said he's going to give us another comforter. And said he would abide with us how long? Forever. We're sealed until the day of redemption. Praise God. Now Satan, on the other hand, he is a master counterfeiter. He never has any original ideas. So look at Revelation 13 now. Revelation 13, verse 16. Satan causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand. Interesting, there's six groups of people there. His number is what? Six, six, six. But um, that no man could buy or sell unless he had the mark. Now look at Revelation 14, 9. Would you read that one, James, for us? Yes. For the folks that are listening on the podcast. And the third angel followed them. Saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So do you see the contrast there? Believers are sealed with the Holy Spirit and we're sealed until the day of redemption. The people that worship the beast, they're marked with his seal and they can never be redeemed. They're forever doomed. They're going to be tormented day and night from the presence um, of God. And that's a sobering thought, isn't it? That's a sobering thought. Uh, indeed. All right, let's go back to Revelation 7. to verse 4 and now John says I heard the number of those that were sealed 144,000 of all the members of the Presbyterian Church the Southern Baptists the United Methodists the Pentecostals and I bring that out because there's a whole lot of people that believe that they're a part of the 144,000 but this very literal here that these 144,000 are from where? All the tribes of the children of Israel. Who, who is Israel? That's Jacob. That's his 
the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the church has not replaced Israel. Now what about this 144,000? Is it a literal number? I believe that it is. Whenever John wants to use approximate numbers. Now by the way, I, I read this and I was surprised. But according to the commentator Robert Thomas, he says no number in the book of Revelation is verifiably a symbolic number. Now, even though the numbers can be representative, none of them are verifiably symbolic. Like there's seven churches. Those are seven actual churches. And they could represent, you know, the totality of the church. But they were seven literal churches. I believe these are 144,000 literal um, Jewish people. Um, let's look at John approximating, shall we? Stay in that same chapter. Chapter 7. Now look at verse 9. James, you want to read that? After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. So when John wants to use approximate numbers, he does. And when he wants to use specific numbers, he uses specific. This is 144,000 Jewish people. Whenever the term sons of Israel is, is used in the Bible, it's never used symbolically. Never. It's always the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they were sealed. All right. Now some of you are going to say, well, um, the tribes are lost. Right? Ten of the tribes, of the twelve tribes were lost because the Assyrians carried the the, children, the northern tribes captive, and so they're lost. Well, I would say lost to who? <laughs> they're not lost to God. In the New Testament, I, these are all out of the New Testament, by the way. I've got these up on the board, but I know some of you are watching on Facebook. Some of you are listening. Um, will you read those verses I've got up there, James? Yeah. Give the reference to, if you will. Ten lost tribes. Under which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. That was the Apostle Paul talking. Okay. James 1.1. 1, 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. Have you read the book of James lately? That's the way it opens up. He addresses it to the 12 tribes, not to the two and the 10 lost. You think James thought the 10 tribes were lost? I, apparently not. And he was Jesus' half-brother, by the way. All right, what about that next one? Matthew nineteen twenty-eight, And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Oh, you mean Jesus didn't think the tribes were lost? He believed that they were still in existence, amen? amen. Have you ever read the book of Luke when they were uh, when, when Jesus was born? Remember there was a lady named Anna? There she was a prophetess. And the Bible says she was from the tribe of Asher. She knew her tribal identity. No extra charge for that. That wasn't in that one. But... 
God knows who these people are. And so, and here's, the, here's the elephant in the room. Speaking of elephants. No, the earth is not on an elephant. <laughs> uh, here's the elephant in the room. Why in the world is God sealing 144,000 Jews? Well, I'm going to offer a, 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 a pretty solid theory here. Because the church is in heaven now. And God's going to deal with the nation of Israel because we are in, at this period here, Daniel's 70th week. And the rules have changed. And so now God is dealing again with the nation of Israel because the church is gone. And Daniel 9, 24 through 27, we've already gone through that, so I'm not going to belabor the point. But there's seven weeks remaining, or seven years for the nation of Israel. God's going to deal with them. He's going to deal with His chosen people. During the church age, let's go to Ephesians 2. I'm sorry, James, you're getting a real workout today. I didn't plan it that way. It's all good. Ephesians 2. Three verses 11 through 22, please. Wherefore, remember that ye bring in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at the time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus Ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to making himself of the twain one new man, so making peace that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were far off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are built together for an inhabitation of God through the Spirit. Amen. God doesn't have a Jewish church and a Gentile church and a, an Indian church and an American church. He's got one blood-bought church. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. You and I are grafted into that vine, that natural olive tree, which is Israel. But God has one church. So the fact that God is dealing with the Jewish nation in particular should be a clue to us. It should be a ding, ding, ding. Okay, the rules have changed. God's doing something different here. 
You read, when you read the book of Acts, when Samaria re receives the gospel, Peter, James, and John come down and pray for him. Why is that? Because God didn't want a Samaritan church and a Jewish church. He wanted one church. Amen. All right. I've got this up on the board here. Here's the funny thing. In the first century, when a Gentile got saved, you know what they asked him? They said, uh, have you been circumcised? Because they thought they needed to become a Jew. But now, how, how have things changed? Now, instead of wondering if the Gentiles need to become Jews, the church thinks they've replaced Israel. How foolish. How, how far we've come. And, and it's not a good thing. Replacement theology is rotten to the core. That's Henry Haney's quote there. I didn't get that out of anybody's commentary. <clears throat> All right. Let's talk about the genealogy now. If you're a student of the Bible, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, so don't worry. But if you're a student of the Bible, you may notice some irregularity in the genealogy. First of all, um, you notice even though Judah is not the firstborn, he's listed first. Anybody want to uh, take a stab at why Judah would be listed first? Because Reuben messed up big time. Reuben messed up big time. And, and who is the lion of the tribe of Judah? Jesus, Jesus Christ, right? And since Mary brought that up, I'll go ahead and put it up on the, on the board here. <clears throat> In the Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 5, 1, says, Now the, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, though he was the firstborn, but for as much as he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given unto the sons of Joseph, the sons of Israel, and the genealogy is not to be reckoned after their birthright. And you can read your own, you know, I'll, I'll leave the details to you. First Chronicles 5, 2, For Judah prevailed above his brethren, and of him comes who? The chief ruler. Who's that? Jesus Christ. Remember the blessing? Genesis 49, The scepter shall not depart from which tribe? Judah. Okay. So Judah's list is first. So that's, that might seem a little strange because he's, he's not firstborn, but that, there's your explanation for that. There's a couple of other omissions. Um, Dan is completely left out. If you know the 12 uh, sons of Jacob, Dan is not mentioned. And you notice Joseph's son Manasseh is mentioned, but Ephraim is not mentioned. <clears throat> and I won't make a big thing of it, but the tribe of Dan was the first one to lead Israel into idolatry. And God had made some strong promises to blot out the name of any tribe that was guilty of idolatry if they worshipped another God. And now Judah got a good prophecy from Jacob when he was dying. But Genesis 49, Dan, not so much. Notice what it says the first thing. Dan shall be a serpent. How many of you know that's not the blessing you want from your daddy on his deathbed? Judah, you're going to have the Messiah come to your, through your tribe. Dan, well, you got a different lot. <laughs> you're going to be a serpent. Um, some believe that this teaches that Dan's going to be the tribe uh, that produces an Antichrist, but I don't believe that. Antichrist is of Roman origin. He's not a Jew. And that'll be, we'll deal with that later. But apostasy, uh, the tribe of Dan, during the days of Jeroboam, 1 Kings uh, 12, what about Ephraim? Well, Hosea 4 
17 says Ephraim is also guilty of idols. Ephraim is joined to his idols. Leave him alone is the quote there. However, all hope is not lost. When you get to Ezekiel 48 and the tribal allotments in the millennium, guess what? Dan's there. So is Ephraim. And so are all the others. And that's, that's, that's wonderful. Apparently, they won't be protected during the tribulation period because of this idolatry. But they will be a part of the millennial kingdom. So, um, so that's that. All right. I've got a lot more I want to say, but I want to bring this thing home. Why should we care? Go, go to the book of Romans. Go, go to the Romans. Why should I care? Now keep in mind the original audience that received this. These early Christians, they're being persecuted. You know, many of them are having to give up their lives for they're being isolated from the trade guilds because of their faith in Jesus. Now the seven churches to which the book of Revelation was initially written to, they're not Jewish. I mean, they're, they're in the province of Asia, Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. So why on earth does, does God, through the Holy Spirit, reveal to John that there's 144,000 Jews that are going to be sealed? After all, who cares? Why would that matter to these guys that there's going to be 144,000 uh, from each tribe? Why would that matter? Well, it matters because it shows us that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. And we need to know that. Romans 1 tells us why the Jews are special. Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God into salvation to everyone that believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul didn't believe in replacement theology. He said, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Jew also. John was a Jew. Look in Romans 3. Romans 3. James wants you to read verses 1 and 2. You can read them off the board if you want to. What advantage then hath the Jew? What profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that under them were committed the oracles of God. You got a Bible in your hand today? Or at your disposal? You can thank the Jews. Unto them were committed the word of God. They were given the scriptures. And we're beneficiaries of that. Alright, Romans 9, 4. Romans 9, Verses 4 and 5. James, will you read that? Yes. Who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises? Whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came? Who is over all? God bless forever. Amen. Amen. There, to the Jews pertain the adoption. And the glory, the temple, the Shekinah glory of God. And the covenants. Did you realize the covenants were given to the Jewish people? Turn with me to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. The giving of the covenants and the law and the service of God and the promises. Whose are the fathers and who are the fathers? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Jeremiah 31, 31. This is a great verse to memorize. And it's easy to remember because it's 31, 31. All right, James. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. A new covenant. A new covenant made with the fine folks of Peace of North Carolina. Is that what it says? No. Who is the new covenant made with? The house of Israel. The house of Israel and the house of Judah, right? Go back to Romans 11. We're closing. The new covenant was made with Israel. You and I are grafted into that. Romans 11. Alright, so Paul's about to ask a question in verse 1. Let me read the Henry Haney version of Romans 11.1. 1. Is replacement theology true? That's what Paul's asking here. I say that has God cast away his people? God forbid, certainly not. Meganoido in the Greek. For I also am an Israelite. Of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of who? Benjamin. Benjamin. God has not cast away his people that he foreknew. Okay? Let's just stay in this 11th chapter. Just, just bear with me just a second here. Look at verse um, 8. Bible says, God has given them, the children of Israel, a spirit of slumber. Eyes that they should not see. The reason the Jews don't believe in Christ right now is because God's got them in a sleep. He's got to give them a spirit of slumber. He says in verse 12, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? What's the answer, guys? No, God forbid. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Do you know that's what God's doing right now? Is he's trying to provoke them to jealousy. And we're probably doing a lousy job of it, if the truth be told. All right, good. Verse 19. James, why don't you read that? 1119. Uh, 1119, yeah. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Resplace the theology. God's done with the Jews. He's only dealing with me now. Isn't it amazing how we'll bask in the grace of God and deny it to other people? It's amazing. Well, he said, because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith, the Bible says. Do not be haughty, but fear. This is why it matters, guys. This is why it matters. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Why should we care about the Jews? Because we want to make sure God's going to keep his promises to us, too. Because if he didn't keep his promises to them, he's not going to keep his promises to us. He might be capricious. But we know better, don't we? Therefore, consider the goodness and the severity of God. On those who fail severity, but toward you goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Verse 23. And they also, the meaning the Jewish people, 
If they continue not in unbelief, they will be grafted in. Notice that word again. You see that? It means there's a second opportunity that awaits the Jewish people. They're going to be grafted in again. Alright, verse 25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. What is a mystery? Something that was not revealed in the Old Testament. This period that we're living in right now, the Old Testament prophets didn't see it. They didn't see the church age. They saw the millennial kingdom. That was the future that they saw. A mystery is something not revealed in the Old Testament. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That's what replacement theology is. It's foolish pride. That blindness in part has happened unto Israel forever. Is that what it says? No. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What is that? Well, I'm just going to say right now, I believe that's the rapture of the church. And when the rapture of the church takes place, guess what? Well, he tells you in the next verse. And so all Israel shall be saved. Is that what it says? It is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will take away ungodliness from the church. Is that what it says? From who? From Jacob. Jacob is not the church. The church is not Jacob. And look at this. For this is my... You see that word? Covenant? Covenant? When I shall take away their sins? James just read about that in Ezekiel. That's not Ezekiel. Jeremiah 31, 31. God made the new covenant with Israel. And he's going to keep his promises to them. Let's keep going. Concerning the gospel, there are enemies for your sake. You know, most of the Jewish people resist the preaching of the gospel right now. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Now, I love this verse. This would be a great verse to put on your refrigerator or however you remember verses. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. King James says, without repentance. In other words, God doesn't change his mind about you. And about me. Or about the Jewish people. So. So when. Oh dear Lord. Let's just keep going. For as you were once disobedient to God. Now you have obtained mercy through their disobedience. You see it's a good thing the Jews rejected their Messiah. Because if they didn't you wouldn't be here today. That, that's the argument Paul's making. If the Jews had not rejected the Messiah. You and I wouldn't be here today. But we received mercy because of their unbelief. Even so, these have been disobedient that through your mercy, they may obtain mercy. Oh, hallelujah. Amen. See, when John wrote, he said, I heard the number of them. It was 144,000 sealed from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. John said, hallelujah, glory to God. God's keeping his promises to the children of Israel. I know he's going to keep his promise to me. Right here and now, I'm not going down. I'm not going to fail. I will make it. I'm not going to falter because Christ lives in me. And I, I serve a God who keeps his promises. I don't care if it's been a thousand years. I don't care if it's been two thousand years, three thousand, four thousand, five thousand. God cannot lie. He's not a man that he should lie. Every promise in the book is mine. Hallelujah. I used to think that Romans 9 through 11 was this big parenthesis. Because it's all about Israel. Israel past election. Israel present. A remnant. Israel future in Romans 11. I used to read that and I think, this seems so out of place. 
in this gospel, this, this, this letter that's the, the, the biggest uh, theological treatise in the New Testament. The letter of Romans was the, the, the heartbeat of the Protestant Reformation. Justification by faith. And I thought to myself, why all this stuff about Israel? But you see, Romans 9 comes after what? Romans 8. Isn't that profound? Romans 8 concern has some of the best promises in all the Word of God. You know what it says? It opens up this way. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It starts out with no condemnation and it ends with no separation. Nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. And he goes through all of those things, you see. So when I hear that God has sealed 144,000 Jews, I can take comfort and say he's a God who keeps his promises. You see. You say, well, they don't deserve it. They rejected their Messiah. Guess what? You and I don't deserve it either. Nobody is here because we deserve it. Thank God for these songs about the blood we've been singing. Thank God. We're, the only thing that makes us worthy for anything fit for heaven is the blood of Jesus. And we might as well sing about it now. We might as well preach about it now. Because in heaven they're going to be singing about the blood. They're going to be singing about the blood forever. They're going to be singing about the cross. Glory to God. Hallelujah. The blood of Jesus. The cross I will glory. God forbid that I should glory except at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you stand? I was planning to preach the whole chapter 7. Aren't you glad the Holy Spirit stopped me? But there's a lot of confusion about the 144,000. All of your cultic groups love to say they're a part of the 144,000. When they knock on your door or whatever, we, me and Willie ran to about 15 of them in the hospital the other day. They were there visiting with somebody. And they were about to put their little sales pitch on me. I was hoping they would. But they did. Next time somebody says they're one of the 144,000, he said, well, really, that's cool. What tribe are you from? <laughs> you see? And they couldn't prove it now if they wanted to because the temple records have been destroyed in 70 AD, the, the genealogies. Okay? But on a serious note, guys, God keeps his promises. You and I, if we're believers, we've been sealed for the day of redemption. You may be here today. And you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's so simple. It's so simple a little child can, under, can understand it, can comprehend it. I'm glad God made it simple for people like me. That if you believe that Jesus died and he rose again, that he died for your sins, and you put your faith in him, and you trust in him for salvation, by grace are you saved through faith. It is the gift of, work, the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There's not one thing you can do to earn your salvation. Not one thing. Not one thing. Not joining the church, not walking an aisle, not getting baptized, not signing a card, raising a hand, whatever. Except putting your faith in the living God today. And it doesn't matter what you've done. The blood of Jesus is powerful enough to forgive each and every sin. Not just for you, but for the sins of the whole world. That blood is powerful enough to forgive the whole world of its sins. The whole world is not going to be saved, unfortunately. But the shame of it is the price has been paid. Wouldn't it be a shame for you to miss heaven? Even though Christ has already invited you and got you a place to sit at the table. Wouldn't it be a shame for him to shed his blood and you to miss out on it? But I want to speak to one more group of people here today. There may be some folks here. You've been away from God. 
You've not been walking as you should. We all have those times if we're being honest. If we're being honest, we, we can all point to times in our life when we have not lived up to God's standards. I mean, let's just be honest. Let's be real. Not a person in here that can say that they've never faltered or failed. But here's the good news. The gifts of God are without repentance. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The same God that called you will forgive you today. And He will restore you. And He won't make you a second class citizen. He'll put a robe on you. He'll put a ring on your finger. And He'll say, welcome back to the table, son. Welcome back to the table. The fellowship is open. If any of those apply to you, or if you just want to come leave a burden at the altar, I invite you to come.